there it is, Grizz. Sounds so sweet. Even first name James is dancing behind the engineer's deck. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of adventure, sports, culture, music, science, gaming, man, everything, basically. We're, we're all over the place, and we skate the, the cultural wavelength to uh, uncover topics, to talk to people who offer real insight into these subjects. Today's guest was one of the original founders of NWA, together with Dr. Dre and Easy. He's the Arabian Prince. Uh, he comes to us via our friend of the pod, George Inglewood, a man who never met a cultural scene he didn't like and didn't want to delve into. So, similarly, uh, the Arabian Prince is uh, possessed of a relentlessly curious mind. This podcast kind of has everything. If you want to learn about West Coast hip-hop culture, if you want to learn what's going on in esports right now, if you want to understand the tech industry, this is also a good podcast to listen to. If you want to understand the importance of making sure you always get your money, you got to listen to the Arabian Prince, tell it how it is. This is a man who floats through scenes. He's can bring us into the party in early 80s Compton at a roller rink, and then he can take us to a tech conference in Las Vegas where he's hobnobbing with Intel executives. Uh, it was tough in our hour together to actually find a through line in covering all these topics, but I think we did. We uncovered what is a, uh, a really engaged man, a man who has a lot of patience and who has a lot of curiosity and is able to harness that in a really focused way. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Uh, let's buckle up and uh, let's start the show. All right. Arabian. We're here with the Arabian Prince in uh, the Red Bull recording studio. Um, he is uh, one of the original producers of NWA. He's a VR entrepreneur, an esports player, a tech designer, manager of JJ Fad, who gave us the club banger Supersonic. Um, there's not much that you don't do, it appears. And I think the challenge here in this hour is going to be trying to nail you down and find the through line through all of that. But um, maybe we start with, with your background, where you were born and, and your musical parents. Um, and maybe just kind of take me through, you know, what Compton or what Inglewood was like back in the day um, when you guys were growing up and, and what kind of outlet uh, music provided you. Right. Well, you were right. Compton was for, I was born and raised in Compton. I actually didn't move to Inglewood until probably halfway through elementary school, like right before I went to high school, we moved to Inglewood. So, you know, from birth all the way up until I was maybe 13 or 14 was Compton and then Inglewood. So, you know, growing up in the Compton or in the hood or whatever people want to call it, um, for me, my mother, since I was the only child, tried to shield me from the streets as much as she possibly could. And she put me in Catholic school. And, you know, I often said Catholic schools in Compton were probably worse than public schools in Compton because it was, you know, walking home in the hood wearing salt and pepper jeans and a tie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. a, you got on a uniform. You got to yeah. fight every day to go to school, to come home. So you became a lot tougher than like the regular kid anyway. And all the girls in school had on skirts. Mm. That's even worse. So Right. But, um, you know, my uncles and cousins were all gang members. One of my uncles was like Black Panther. So growing up, I got to see a lot of, you know, the gang life, the drug life and the shootings, the stabbings and stuff and all of the police stuff. And um, 
that also kind of pushed me away from it. You know, I'm like, well, my uncle coming home with a gunshot wound or, you know, stabbed in the head or something like that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, so that kind of helped out. And um, my mother was a, I thought I turned my phone off. Sorry about that. Um, my mother was a um, classical pianist and um, she taught um, piano in uh to the kids and stuff like that as well. My father was a prolific writer and author and um, publisher. He owned, um, co-owned a magazine called Players, which was a black adult magazine when I was young. So I got to see a lot of naked women when I was little. (laughs) And uh, he also wrote over 100 books, mostly like black exploitation and biographies on, you know, different famous people. So I had a a lot of creative background growing up yeah incredibly artistic background actually um also the fact that your mother was a musician uh your stepfather yeah, i stepfather believe was, was also a bass player, bass player. Yeah. how did that influence you in terms of understanding the craft of how to make music um and then segueing into sampling you know yeah. and, and making beats um did one prepare you better for the other um you know it was kind of crazy because i really didn't want to make music my mother kept trying to teach me piano and i didn't want to learn I wanted to play football I'm like, I want to play football I want to play football but my uncle who was like my idol at the time he was the one with the cool you know van in the late 70s with the you know shag carpet and CB radio so I would always hang out with him on the weekend and he influenced me more than anybody else on music because it was like okay listen to this and it was always Smokey Robinson and all the funks the parliament funkadelic Prince you know, the Gap Band, Barcades, all of that stuff. But then he had kind of a warped side, too, because he was like, my first birthday that he got me, like, a significant gift was a eight-track portable boombox. Dream. Yeah, and it had, like, one great big speaker in it and had a handle on it. And uh, he bought me a Kiss eight-track, and it was the one that had the four faces. Everybody had their own album, and he got me the Gene Simmons. And I'm like just over and over listening to Gene Simmons, listening to Gene Simmons. And that along with Parliament Funkadelic and then the, um, what was this one group? A lot of people don't know about. They were real underground, but amazing music. The Last Poets, you know, listening to that and then listening to Craftwork uh, just kind of screwed my mind up in music. And I'm how, like, how I want to do this. How did you get exposed to all these different Just music. from him. Right. You know, at his house on the weekend, I mean, he's in there smoking weed and drinking and partying, you know, with girls and they had little sisters and I'm in there hanging out with them and we're just playing with his records. And I'm like, I want to do this. Like, this is amazing. How do I make this? You know. And and how did you start? Man, um, I became a DJ um, at 15. I started to DJ. And the reason I started to do that was um, I tell you, my mother was very protective of me because I'm an only child. And she would never let me go out and party or hang out with my friends. The only people I could hang out with was my cousins. And um, if they got to go out, matter of fact, my aunt was very liberal. She was very, go, go, do whatever. You know, she would just let us go. But my mother wasn't that way. So I was always hanging out with my cousins. And I'm like, well, how can I figure out a way to be more independent and do my thing? And I'm like, well, if I start DJing these dances at the schools, I'm the first person at the party and the last one to leave. And nobody laughs at me that my mother's bringing me because I got to bring my equipment. So I kind of figured that out and I'm getting paid too. So that's how I got into DJing. 
And um, you had this desire to be independent, maybe yeah. because your mom was, yeah, was so, trying to shelter you so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I saw my uncle, and he was just free, wild and free. So I wanted to do that, but I was also, you know, very. Um, I'm a very analytical person, like very matter of fact, like I don't like taking extra steps for anything. So I'm like, okay, I want this. And, you know, we really didn't have a lot of money. So I'm like, how can I get this? Okay, DJ money, you know, I can buy things that I want. So I did that and I bought a um, little drum machine. It was a toy, actually. It was a Synsonic drums by Mattel. Had little four little pads on it and it made little tom sounds and little pews whatever you know and when i would dj i would just mess around with the drum machine while i would play stop the music and make little beats and people would keep dancing and i was like aha like this is cool and then when i bumped into a buddy of mine um that i kind of halfway grew up with two egyptian lover um we started doing the same thing at some of the parties and started doing little chants and little mini raps over the beats and like well we can make records so it was just a little slow transition you know kind of figuring it out yeah but it was also that that time there it seems like there was a sense in the music industry that 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 kind of thing was possible yeah that that growing up where you grew up wasn't a wasn't a barrier yeah but the crazy thing on the west coast like now people take it for granted um the musicians and the rappers and just you know the people who want to make music now it's very easy in the late 70s and early 80s, it wasn't easy. Like, there was, like, if you didn't have any technical knowledge, you couldn't really do it. You know, if you were a band, yes, if you played. But if you were just somebody who really didn't play music, I could play the piano and the keyboards a little bit, but you needed technical knowledge to run a drum machine back then. You needed technical knowledge to know MIDI, or this was even before MIDI, like CV Gate and all of these things. So that started my whole technological brainstorming of things because I knew how to plug in all these things and make them work and simpty this and midi that and you know so it was hard and then there was no outlet so you had to find like okay I've got a song what do I do with it you know you couldn't upload it to the internet there was no internet so it was like okay you had to find somebody who could press a record but you don't have the money to get it pressed because you're 16 17 years old so I had to kind of figure out all these little things to get to making my first record that's interesting the the tech thing because i don't know i I would think the the child of of artists uh, would be very kind of creative right brain where did the tech thing come from my uncle again 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 my uncle mr um, a track with the shag carpet yeah yeah he had a cb radio in his van and we would get in the van and we'd be riding around doing the whole you know, four ten, four ten. You know, ride, ride on, all of that stuff. I had all the lingo. It wasn't like breaker, breaker one nine. That's the right. corny stuff. It was like real CB talk that we were getting into. And I was a little kid with a deep voice. Yeah. So all of these older women were like trying to find me. Cause I used to call myself <laughs> pretty boy back then. Like, and I remember going to one of the little jamborees, you know, CB jamborees, and all these women are looking for me, and I'm like, this little kid, and they were, like, pissed off. They would never talk to me again on the CB after that, but uh, it was fun, and from there, I met other CB guys, and we just had, like, a regular one that you would buy at a store. I think it was a Cobra or something like that, and the real 
CBers, like the real dudes, had these huge base stations in their house, like big boxes with knobs on them. And they had this uh, microphone. It was called a uh, Silver Eagle D104. It's this big old, you've probably seen a big chrome thing with a big diaphragm on the top. And when you would key it up, they figured out a way to put a little uh, bobby pin in it. And when you would press the button, it would go ding. And for me, I was like, I want to do that. All I wanted to do was just, before I talked, ding. And I figured it out. And from that point on, I was modding CB radios and put a big antenna on my roof. And I was hooked. Damn. Started yeah. with a ding. Oh, yeah. Started with a ding. <laughs> <laughs> how um, how was it for you um, in terms of, it sounds like you hung out with a bunch of older people. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you have a lot of friends your own age or was that just kind of a... I don't know, uh, kind of a consequence of, of staying in so much or... Um, you know what? I was, I had friends, but they weren't doing anything. Right. And um, I don't talk about it much. I've, I got a, I have a really high IQ and I can't remember the number now. I have a high IQ, but I can't remember the number. It's like <laughs> 140, 150 or something like Idiot that. Idiot It's, it's yeah. up there. But, um, and my uncles and cousins found out at an early age because when I was five, six years old, I was reading their calculus books and I could understand it. And they were like, well, how do you know what this is? I'm like, well, this, this, this is this. And like, no, but how do you know this? I'm like, I don't know. It's just, I could read it and I could understand it. So I think I was advanced above the people in my neighborhood yeah. and I just wanted to do more. And, and you were age. you were just you were relentlessly curious, but you also you wanted to figure stuff out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I don't I have a lot of patience, a lot of patience. So I would just sit there and figure things out, and I could do it very quickly. So that's what pushed pushed me into the technology side. And I would think the first check I got from my record, I went out and bought a computer, and this was back when computers were monochrome and. You turn it on, and there was there's no pictures. It was just a prompt, like a C prompt in DOS, or I had a Commodore VIC-20 or whatever. It was You had to know some coding or something just to get the thing to work, and I had to figure it out. Yeah. I just started figuring it out. But you also threw parties. And threw parties. <laughs> there you go. Who came to those parties? Where where were they held? I'm trying to imagine. Take me back to a scene there. What are, what are we, like 85, 86, 87? No, we're early. We were like okay. 83, 82, 83, 84. Um, early on... Um, Uncle Jan, there was in the LA scene, and this I'm gonna set this up because nobody talks about this. Everybody kind of has their bias, and they only talk about their crew. But I was in a bunch of different crews because I was just trying to get in, you know. And you had Uncle Jam's army over here. You had Z cars. It was a bunch of dudes who drove dots and Z's, so they called themselves Z cars. You had the Wrecking Crew, which was Lonzo, Dre, Yella. They had their little crew. Then you had like Ultimate Sounds. There was so many different, you know, little crews around, and um, everybody was doing parties in Compton. It was uh, Skateland USA in Compton. It was like a little skating rink and whole little dances there every weekend. There's another place there called Dudos and Jeffy's which was Eve at the Dark, which Lonzo owns. Um, and Uncle Jim's Army was doing like little smaller place, not smaller places, but their own little thing, like the Veterans Auditorium in Culver City. Then they started making a little money and doing the convention center and then even the sports arena, which was crazy because when we DJed the sports arena, you had only DJs and 10,000 people dancing to us DJing, which was crazy. 
you know, it wasn't yeah, a concert. Yeah, I mean, you're and, like a teenager, and, yeah, yeah. and you're commanding a dance floor. Oh, basically. yeah, and 100 speakers. We had 100. It was like a full-on concert with just oh. us DJing. Wow. Yeah. With a feeling of power? Oh, yeah, feeling of power. And back then, I used to dress like Prince. So, like, feeling of power and looking like Prince. And, a lot of dudes used to dress like Prince Dude, back then. you know, all these hardcore dudes I grew up with, I'm like, man, look, don't try in front. Like, you either look like Prince or Michael Jackson, <laughs> you know, when you was young. And if you go back and... Anybody get mad at me? You look at me. You look at Dre and Yella. You look at even Ice T. Ice T wore leather pants and spikes right. in the late seventies, early eighties because nice. that was the style. Right. That was cool. That's what was cool. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Prince. Your name came from Prince. Obviously, a big inspiration. Where well, did Arabian come from? Um, yeah. So I used to call myself DJ Prince because I used to dress like Prince and you know whatever. And uh, I was with Egyptian Lover one day at uh, one of the skate rinks. I can't remember if it was World on Wheels or Skateland, and we were DJing, and a girl walked up to us, and I only met her that one time. And she asked Egypt what his name was, and he was, you know, Egyptian Lover. And she asked me what my name was. I'm like, DJ Prince. And she goes, hmm, you should call yourself Arabian Prince because I've seen you guys together all the time. We should do, like, tricks and stuff. And then she was like, I was like, that's cool. We can make money on that. And yeah. I, I'm always thinking money. Like, yeah. we can make money doing Egyptian Lover Arabian Prince show. So I kept it. That's good, man. Big in the Middle East market, maybe, too. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> always, always thinking expansion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. And I was thinking, like, you know, I had long hair and the whole Arabic thing with the women. And, you know, it was cool. So a little, I, little I just, harem up on stage. Yeah, I, I kept it. And I've got, you know, so many alter egos and AKAs. And that was something that Prince did, too. So. Egyptian lover, he's Egyptian lover, but he's also Jamie Jupiter because Prince was Jamie Starr. So he had Jamie Jupiter and he would put records out under Jamie Jupiter and I'm Arabian Prince, but then I had Professor X. So Professor X is my alter ego, which is really, really huge in Europe because it's more craft work style, you know, music. Oh, kind of techno. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like more craft worky techno and it's, I had a really, really big record um, called Professor X Saga that I did. And it's so funny. Um, one of the biggest house um, electro DJs from back in the day, Juan Atkins, you know, of he's course. huge. Yeah. One day I was hanging out with him and, you know, he did the whole Cybertron thing and that. And he was like, I was playing it at one of the parties that we were at one of the arenas. And he's like, man, that's, that's a great song. He said, we've been trying to find this guy to bring him to Detroit to do a show for the last 10 years. I'm like, really? So you should have called me. He said, why, you know him? I'm like, no, that's me. He had no clue. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it wasn't that connected back then. No, 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 no. You, you just know? put it out and you never talked about it. And you know, I mean, even Juan Atkins, one of the founders of Detroit Techno, even they needed to go to Berlin to really have their music yeah. legitimized yeah. even, right? And really blow up. There you go. Sense. Let's get back to Prince, though, the dearly departed Prince. Yes. Um, if you could distill into maybe a sentence or a paragraph what uh why why he was such a role model for you and, and just the way he he expresses artistry um create you know creativity um genius you know as far as his music i remember the first record my uncle exposed me to was uh for you uh, and i can't remember i think it's either the one where he's on the horse butt naked with the big afro or he had the perm. It was one of the two. Both he was kind of halfway naked on the covers, but he was just hair, you know, and like, this is me and I'm wearing Unforgettable a, image, I'm by wearing the way. a bikini and some <laughs> yeah. boots and, you know, and all I can remember is seeing the, the album cover and then seeing him perform at the few things you saw on TV or in the magazines. 
And I'm like, man, look at all these women. I'm like, women love Prince. I'm like, ah, yeah, that's the way I want to go, you know. Like, women love Michael Jackson, but the glitter, ah, I'm not into the glitter. Prince, this is where I want to go. And he could play any instrument, too. Yeah. And I wanted to be that. But I just, my mother kept trying to get me to learn, you know, piano, like, classically. And I didn't want to do it. When and did she give up on that? When I started playing football and DJing, you know. Right. But, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad that I didn't learn the way she wanted to teach me. And this is no disrespect to real musicians because I'm not a real musician. I can create music, but I'm not a real musician as far as I can't sit down and just play. But you give me an hour, I can figure it out and I can play anything I want to play. But um, I think that if I was trained, I wouldn't be as creative in my mind. Because she would always listen to my music and she would go, hmm, that's interesting. Why did you play that chord? You should have done this in the progression because, you know, people learn chord progression. And I'm like, well, does it sound bad? And she goes, no. I'm like, okay. Because I've got Parliament Funkadelic in my head where they're playing like these crazy, you know, crazy notes that aren't normal. And I've always wanted to do music that wasn't normal. Everything that I do in life... I want to skew it a little bit. Like even my first record was called Strange Life. I want to do something a little different. So I'm glad I didn't learn so hmm. I could create yeah. as opposed to just play. Yeah, where does that come from? I don't know. I don't know, like maybe banging my head on my wall as a little kid. or I th <laughs> No, I really think it was the whole Parliament Funkadelic thing, man. Yeah. Like being six, seven years old and listening to that stuff. And my uncle took me to one of the concerts. He took me to the concert at uh, the Forum where they brought down the mothership. And when they brought the mothership down, I lost my mind. I was like, oh, that's it. That's, yeah. This is why I want to be on stage wearing, like, boots and crazy furs and coming out of a spaceship. Yeah, I mean, they're interstellar, right? Yeah. But they came in peace, yeah. which is important. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you uh, – so you met World Class, uh, World Class Wrecking Crew. Yep. How did you connect with Dr. Dre? Uh, we were buddies from the beginning. Like, you know, we did a lot of the same – DJ places, you know, Skateland, World on Wheels, Dudos, Eve at the Dark. Um, you know, we just hung out. You know, we was best buddies. Did you think similarly as well? Yeah, or? we yeah. thought similarly. You know, we would always on the weekends go chase women at Venice Beach and then go back and just work on music. And at the time, we didn't have a lot of money. So I remember sometime we would just be sitting in the studio and nobody in this room is old enough to know what this is. But there used to be a a little place. It was kind of like Taco Bell, but it was called Pup and Taco. Sounds and healthy. Buy, yeah. <laughs> it was hot dogs and tacos. And you could get three hot dogs for 99 cents or three tacos for 99 cents. So we would go buy a bunch of hot dogs, a bunch of tacos, go to the store, buy a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and some popcorn. And that would last us two, three days, you know, in the studio, just kind of messing around with beats and stuff, you know. Yeah, that's incredibly nutritious yeah <laughs> it's like, i miss it did you ever dearly. did you ever uh, combine the hot dogs with the tacos actually you know what i did it once yeah i can i can actually remember it. i remember taking the i wonder what you i wonder if you would put ketchup you probably wouldn't you'd probably salsa well you know, know. it pop and taco it i couldn't identify the meat the meat in the taco and i remember it so vividly it had a weird taste to it mm. it had its own taste so you didn't even have to put Anything in the taco meat, yeah, because it just had its own little taste. You yeah, know? it'd be interesting to see what kind of animal that came from. Yeah, know? I looked it up one time online because I was talking to somebody about it, and I actually found pictures of pup and taco. You know, oh, man. 
Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Um, you guys, uh, tell me a little bit about the genesis then um, of, um, of NWA. Wow. So how that came about. And, you know, I always say, because, you know, there's so many stories, the movie, which I think was more of a movie than an actual factual story, even though I wasn't in it. And we'll get into that later. Um, how we started NWA was because of the, how can I put the words? Dre didn't like his situation. I didn't like my situation. I was a solo artist, but I produced a lot of other groups. I produced Bobby Jimmy and the Critters. I produced JJ Fad. I produced a lot of the stuff on the West Coast. But I was on Bobby Jimmy's label. His name was Russ Parr. He was the morning radio um, DJ at K-Day back in the day. So he enlisted me to produce all his music. And also used to do voices in the morning on K-Day. Like we would do all these crazy voices in the morning because I do voiceover. So um, he would put out my records on his label. That's actually how I got my first record out because I didn't really have the money to do it. Um, a guy who's passed away named Sam Nassif, who owned a, he owned the little club that I had called the cave in, um, where was it? In um, Lenox next to Hawthorne. He actually helped me fund making my record. I walked into a studio with no idea and came out with my song, but then I had to get it pressed. So Russ Parr, allowed me to put it on his label and all my early releases came out under his label. But I didn't understand publishing writers, anything like that, or royalties at the time. And I wasn't really getting my fair share of the royalties. And not until, um, and I got to give a quick shout out to my boy, Unknown DJ, who was from back then. He was a little crazier than everybody else. He knew he was getting ripped off because he had his own label through McCola as well, the manufacturing company. So he figured, look, you guys are probably pressing and selling my records out the back door, but I'm coming in here every week and you're going to cut me a check. I don't care. You're cutting me money every single week. So make sure you sell more than you're funding me. And he brought me into that mix. So every week I go get a check. So I was cool, but I knew that I, I mean, was you making... had to demand it back then, right? Yeah. You had to demand even I now. I mean, not nowadays. Of course, it ain't even really changed, but you know, we had to go and do that because we were young and they just took advantage of us. So me and Dre talked one day and it was like, man, we need to do more because he's not making money. He's got an RX-7 with no back window. I've got a raggedy car, but the people that were doing music for, we got hit records on the yeah. radio, gold records here and there. We're not making that money. So we talked to our boy Eze, who lived in the neighborhood and he was uh, the neighborhood pharmaceutical technician at the time, you know, mm, servicing yeah. Compton and South Central. And he had a little money um, didn't know nothing about music, but he knew he wanted to do something different. So we kind of sat down, talked about it, and started making, you know, music that ended up becoming NWA. Your tracks were different than the others, though. Yeah. You know what's funny? They they were, but they weren't. And I tell people this. It's a crazy thing. If you listen to the first NWA album, right, we use the same drum machines and keyboards right. that we use on all the electro funk stuff we did. So if you listen to like Boys in the Hood or like Boys in the Hood, you know, like or Dope Man, it's all like dun 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 That slowed down electro funk. Yeah. And the drums, the you know, because back then samplers only sampled maybe a second and a half. Like you had a yeah, when samplers first came out, you had a sampler that it was Nakai, I can't remember the number, but it maybe had seven seconds of total sampling time, right? And you had to break it down in pieces so you could only get maybe 0.8 seconds 
of a sample. So it was only like an orchestra hit. So that's why you heard a lot of orchestra hits in early songs, because that's all you could sample or a kick or a snare or like a hey, that's it. And um, so we just utilized what we had and we had, we were friends with, and this is going back to the technology thing. I was friends with Daniel Sofer, who was one of the head guys over at Oberheim at the time. And Oberheim made the DMX and the DX drum machines and all the big fancy keyboards. He would burn chips for us with the sounds we wanted and we would have to manually put them in the drum machine. So it was kind of a crazy thing to get us to that NWA sound. Right. But once we got there, it transformed. We said, well, how are we going to do this? We'll slow down this and make it big. All we cared about was bass and yeah. big beats. Yeah. yeah. So I read somewhere that, that you weren't totally in tune with the whole gangster rap thing. And that's why ultimately you, you bounced. Is that, is that accurate or no, how would you characterize? No. And, and if anybody hears this podcast and wants to help me fix my Wikipedia, I am, I would <laughs> pay them dearly because it's so funny, man. Now I'm talking about Wikipedia for two seconds. I went on there once to try and fix my wiki page because there's so much, oh, he left because there was no room for him when Ice Cube showed up. Well, if you look at the albums, me and Ice Cube were there at the same time. Right. Wrong. You know, oh, he left because of what you just mentioned. Uh, Wrong. I left because I wasn't getting paid. And I told you from the beginning, as a little kid, all I cared about is money. I could give a crap about fame. If I do work, pay me. You know, and what had happened was I had done this record Supersonic, right? cost me 400 bucks in the studio. I was dating one of the girls in JJ Fad and they weren't rappers. They were just girls that I met. I met, I was dating one of the girls and Dre was dating another girl. There were five girls in a the group. They were just friends. And JJ Fad actually stands for Juana, Juanita, Fatima, Annie, and Dania. That's what it stands for. Crazy. Nobody knows. But, um, Dre, exclusive. Yeah, there we you go. We just got an exclusive on the pod first name. Yes. Amazing. And Dre, we were sitting there one night hanging out with the girls. They're like, we want to rap. We want to rap. And Dre was like, y'all whack. I'm not even going to touch you guys. And I'm like, come down to the studio and just hang out one day. So I was working on, I think, a Professor X record at the time. And I had finished. And I had like three, four hours of studio time left. And I'm like, all right, let's mess around. And I did a song called Another Whole Bites to Dust, which was talking about... Um, Roxanne Shante and the East Coast chicks. And I'm like, we can do this record, but I'll let you know, you guys can't rap and they'll destroy you for this. Let me do this other record in my head and we'll do it really, really fast. So we're going to call it Supersonic. And I did it in like a couple hours. And wow. um, that ended up being... And when that hit, hit oh did my it God. hit immediately? It hit big and it w- hit immediately. What year was that? 87. 87. Yeah, and I actually had originally put it out on Dream Team Records because... I was friends with the Dream Team at the time, and they were hot. And this was, you know, fell right in line with that kind of style. And it blew up. But then, as everybody gets, you know, kind of greedy with money, my boy Rudy over there wasn't trying to pay nobody. And I'm like, oh, I see. Okay, you think I'm stupid. Nope, not stupid. You got a brand new Cadillac off this hit record, and we're not getting paid. So we were just about to start ruthless records with nwa we were just working on the first ep and i said you know what i'm gonna bring this record into in your know, ruthless because it's our company now and i can bring this in and it's already a hit it'll bring money in and help us fund doing this album and that's what i did and 
you know. What did what did a come back to supersonic really hitting getting big? What did that do for your confidence? Because you you're you're very eloquent. You come off very confident right now in the the fifteen minutes we've been talking. Did you always have that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm a shy person. Um, if you catch me one on one, just talking to somebody, or like if I was trying to go chase a girl or hit on a girl, they would probably never know because I'm not that way in public. But for things that I know, you know, knowledge, I'm very confident in my knowledge of music, knowledge of technology, knowledge of business. I'm very, you know, confident about those things. You probably had to be back then too, in order not to be taken advantage of. Oh yeah. Well, like I said, after the first time I got taken advantage of, I figured it out really, really quick. And I've been on a lifelong mission to make sure that doesn't happen to other people. How do you do that? What speaking, do you look out for? I speak, you know, more, I speak a lot of schools, tell people or anybody in music, I always say, take care of your business, take care of your publishing, your writers. You know, when you do music with other people, make sure you, you know, you might, oh, these are my homies, these are my buddies. Write it down, what you did. Like I did 10% of this, you know, come to an agreement right. and have everybody sign it because when the record come out and it blow up, people get brain damaged like real quick. Like, yeah. oh, this is my record. Yeah. And if you don't have nothing, ain't nobody going to pay you. Right. You know, if you don't have no proof, you're right. not going to get paid. Straight out of Compton came out. You were gone by then. I was, you know, it's funny. I was there for the whole album. I'm on an album. Sure, I was yeah, there of course. through the whole production. And when it came out, I actually did a, a few of the first part of the tour. But what had happened was the same thing. Supersonic had blown up. Um, Straight out of Compton had come out. And we still weren't getting paid. We were getting a little money here and there. It was almost like, you know, oh, can I get paid? Talk to Easy, talk to Easy. Yo, man, come on, man. Can we get paid? Oh, you need to talk to Jerry. Jerry. Jerry's handling all of that stuff. And you go talk to Jerry Heller, and it was just, it was a runaround. And I'm like, why did, is this a runaround when this is our company? It's not Jerry Heller's company. We put this company together ourselves, and we had an agreement that we would share in everything in this company. That's why I brought my million dollar record over here. But when I put it there, I found out, oh, it ain't that way. Jerry's running the company. Easy's the head of the company, and we're workers. And I'm like, nah, that's not what we agreed to. Yeah. Went and had my little meeting with Jerry and straightened my business out, and I left. Right. I got my business straight to where in the contract I get what I get, and, you know, I'm good. And I told everybody else, go take care of your business. But, you know, as part of the movie, you see it didn't happen that way. I was going to say, was that accurate in the movie? Was that characterized accurately the way, you know, just kind of the mischief that, that Jerry Heller was up to? Kind of, sort of, you yeah. know what I mean? But, you know, like I said, I was the one who kind of figured it out and told everybody else. And I remember I bought, you know, a little Porsche or something. It wasn't an expensive, expensive Porsche, but I bought a Porsche with some of the money I got from getting paid. And I remember Q, everybody drove it too because I went to one of the concerts and Q was like, man, you know, where'd you get this? I'm like, well, I kind of got paid, you know, you need to go talk to somebody. And uh, then right after I left, Cube left. And then, you know, the whole thing dominoed from there. Do you see the movie? Yeah, I've seen it. You're not in it. No. And it was funny. Somebody sent me pictures of my character in the movie. So my character was in the movie. There were casts, there were they yeah. had lines. And no, actually in the movie. Like there was pictures of him sitting next to everybody else, but they cut those scenes out. And a lot of the scenes in the movie... I was there in real life and I kept telling everybody like funny jokes like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I remember this scene. I was in the bathroom when they filmed this. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think I was out getting burgers or, you know, but I think a lot had to do with and I say I have no disrespect for anybody. I'm still cool with all my boys in the group, but I sued 
Easy's wife, who owns everything now, a few times. And even now, she ain't paying the royalties that she's supposed to be paying. And it's one of those things where it's like, no, nah, I ain't ever going to let it go because I did the work. You need to pay me. So every time I go and sue, she does something to kind of try and, like, you know, piss me off or whatever she thinks is doing to me. But I'm like, what she doesn't understand is I could give a shit or care about fame. I just want to get paid. Like, if I did work, you weren't there. She was never there with us. She wasn't part of none of this. And now she owns everything, and she wants to take control of it. And, you know, like, oh, it's her own personal bank. It ain't. You know, pay everybody what they're supposed to get paid, and everything will be cool. It happens over and over with everybody. If you pay all the groups and all the people who worked on the thing what they're supposed to get, you'll have so much money because everybody will keep doing stuff for you. But she doesn't want to play that way. So, you know. It doesn't sound like you're too bummed to not be in the No, movie. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. You know, I'm, I've never been bitter because yeah. I do so much stuff. I've always done stuff. It's just I'm a fair person and no one can go and say anything negative about me. No one's ever, ever. Like I always say, oh, you got a problem with what I'm saying. Say something, you know, contradicted. They can't. Or, oh, you got a problem? Let's go to court. They never want to go to court with me. I end up settling because nobody wants to let me go to court and really... Yes, because I want to. If I go to court, I'll straighten it out for everybody. Sure. Like, just see JJ Fag get paid, Yellow Ren, all other people. Everybody should get paid. Like, I'll tell the story. There's a real story out there that never has been told that needs to be told at some point. You got a good law firm. It sounds like. Oh yeah, <laughs> got big boys that you, play golf, <laughs> which you do too. Which we'll yeah. have to get back to you later. But um, I, I imagine you gamed as a kid, right? Yes. I mean, Atari 2600, if you're such oh, a tech, man. you know, I guess I go back, but you know, I go back to Commodore VIC-20, yeah. you know, TI-99, I go, yeah. yeah, way back. You're an entrepreneur. When did you see the potential in that? Um, it's funny. I did a, yesterday, I just flew back yesterday from a tech event in Vegas. Um, there's a company called Ingram Micro that's the biggest distributor of technology in the world. And all of their partners, Microsoft, Intel, um, Oracle, they're all up there having like a little summit. They invited me up to be one of the Shark Tank judges. They did like a little Shark Tank thing, and I was a judge, so that was kind of cool. But I had a talk with one of the Intel execs yesterday about He asked me the same thing, like, how did you get into this? I'm like, dude, when we first started making music, we would travel around drinking beer, you know, um, drinking tequila sunrise, gin and saco, whatever. Yeah. You know, we really didn't smoke weed that much back then. It was mostly drinking and partying. Yeah. But as soon as the handheld video games came out, those old little Calicos with the little the dots and playing football and baseball. Yep, yep, yep. yep. People stopped drinking and partying and wanted to just sit around and play video games all day. And I went, I did the whole, aha, there's something to this. This is like the new crack because people want to do this now. Like, I mean, crack was still around. But oh, yeah. yeah. But no, it was because, I mean, yeah. every day people sitting in the house or outside just playing the games for money. Yeah. I'm like, this is there's something to this. So when I got my first checks, I started investing in early, early Microsoft back when it was just DOS, that kind of thing, and some other little tech stuff and trying my hardest to figure out how to get into that industry. I had taught myself how to code. I had taught myself how to do sprite animation and then eventually real, you know, 3D graphic animation, not just as a hobby. And I wanted to use my skills like I got tons of time. How do I do this? So I ended up reaching out to companies, you know. And did you have an open door? 
not at first. They thought I was crazy. Like, and why do you want to do this? Like, we know who you are, but why do you want to do this? Right. So I figured it out. I started going to conventions. They have a convention every year um, called SIGGRAPH, which is the, ad, not ad, I would say it's a graphic convention where it was all the big companies who sold the hardware and the software. And, you know, I would go and just walk around and see what was new, what I could buy. And I would meet some of the companies and ask questions. And um, I met one of the companies, which was um, the company that made 3D Studio Max. And I was asking them how to do some kind of volumetric lighting stuff. And they were like, oh, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. I'm like, oh, really? I'm like, well, I do this and this and get the same results. They were like, well, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I figured it out. I, didn't I read, read the, the calculus book. Yeah, man. I didn't read that book. Like, yeah. do you read? I'll say I couldn't find it in yeah. the manual, so I just figured it out. And they were like, "Hmm, who are you?" And I told them, they were like, "Oh, we got to do something like this is great for our business." Like saying that this guy who's an entertainer, or whatever, is doing animation. So I ended up being like a poster child for them. And it was a huge computer company called Intergraph at the time. I started doing stuff with them. Were you, were you taking a break from music? Was that what this was? No, what, I was, was still it? doing music. You were still doing music. This What was this giving you then? It's just, you know, you get bored doing the same thing. And I'm not sure. I'm not really into astrological signs, but people say Gemini's are like all over the place. So I'm yeah. a Gemini. So I'm like really all over the place. I'm doing eight or nine things at the same time. And I've always been that way. So how do you focus, me, by the way? That's how I focus. Doing. By doing a lot, but how do you? How are you confident that you can do every one of those things up to the best of your ability if you're so scattered? Because it's easy. It's always been easy to me. Does I this go do, back to the IQ thing? I, it could be. No, it could be. I don't right. know. I just do music fast. I do this fast. I'm like, oh, I want to do this, and I'll do it. You know. Why can you not do anything halfway? Um, I think it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of somebody else's time. I'll take forever to do something if it's not going to be right instead of stopping, you know, a lot of people will do something and if it doesn't ever pan out, they'll give up. You know, I'm, I'm not that way. I'm like, it's a great idea. I'm going to see it through. I'm going to figure it out and implement it and make it happen. Yeah, I guess it's just knowing when something's a great idea, when something, I don't know, I'm the opposite. So, yeah. so I, I'm just trying to think of how you, how you finally make that decision. Like, no, I'm, this is, this is something I'm going to see through to yeah. the end. Well, you know what I tell um, other producers, this when I speak at schools and stuff like what should I be focusing on I'm like dude just keep making music um, a lot of producers or artists fall in love with all the music they make they make a lot of songs fall in love with it or you get people I'm gonna make an album they'll make 11 songs that's their album I've never been that way I'll make a hundred songs but you have to identify what's great and what's not great so once I find a song that's eh, mediocre I'll finish it to see if it'll pan out. And if not, okay, put that over there. And then all of a sudden, aha, that's a hit. Put that, that's in the hit bowl. That's a hit. So same thing with technology or anything else I do. It's like, I can identify what's a hit, but I don't fall in love with anything I do until I find something that I deem is great. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that does make sense. Do the ideas just come from where? I mean, where, where do, where do musical ideas come from? Just out of the air. Out of the air. It's so crazy. Right. Yeah. So you hear stuff. Hear you stuff, know. sleep. You know, I wake up. I'm like, mm, I wake up at four in the morning sometime. Like, okay, just put this beat down. Or I've got all these little just ideas on my phone where I'm humming or doing stuff. And, you know, later on, like I just recently went back and listened to songs 
from years ago with this guy in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, shout out to just, uh, George Inglewood, yeah, my yeah, uh, Inglewood. partner and partner in Pod, <laughs> overthinking it. Uh, thanks for bringing Arabian in. Yeah, so we were sitting down, and I'm going through some old stuff because I never like to give people old music. I always want to create something for that person. Like, let's figure out who you are, create music around you. But every now and then I'll go back and I'm like, ooh, that's a heater right there. Like, I forgot about that one because I had nobody to give it to. It was a hit, but I had nobody to give it to. And I just put it over there and found a couple for, you know, him and his artists. So it's, uh, it happens. It's funny. I mean, you, you came up in, in an age when it was really hard to produce music. You yeah. know, it, it took, like you said, it took going through tech manuals and it took like having the right gear and knowing oh, people yeah. that had the right gear. And, and nowadays it's so, so easy, you know, and do you think something has gotten lost? No, because I've often said this and it is the truth. You can give a million people the exact same equipment, the exact same instruments, the exact same everything. And only 1% of those people are going to make records and hits out of those million people. It's just what it is. So it doesn't change, you know, like when we were growing up, there were bands. And then when synthesizers came around, the bands were like, foul, foul, synthesizers, they're cheating. This is not real music. And then that became accepted. And now digital music has come around, even with the DJs, digital DJing, foul, foul, that's not real DJing or that's not real producing. It's just another tool. Yeah. But the people who are creative and the people who create the real, I'm not saying other music's not real, but who create the music that the, you know, masses love yeah. will always rise to the top. Yeah. 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 The Taylor Swiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll say something and I hope he doesn't want to like fight me, but why was I at a uh, hard rock, you know, which millions of you know, amazing artists all on the walls and homages to all these amazing people. There's a Paulie D thing. Yikes. With, like Paulie D's picture in his laptop and Serato records in a case. Wow. That's when you know times have changed. By the way, I'm just amazed you found the Hard Rock Cafe. I'm not cafe, I'm Hard Rock Hotel. Sorry. Oh. The casino. Still. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's one in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I was just oh, at. Oh, good. I'm yeah. glad, I'm glad they're... They're still making, oh, yeah. They're making still there. themed restaurants and hotels. Um, let's, uh, I don't even know where to go to next. I mean, there's, there's, I, I kind of have this image in my head of you um, showing up to uh, conferences, tech conferences in the 90s. I mean, did you have like a badge that said Arabian on it? Arabian. Uh, yes, I did. Arabian, Arabian Prince. Arabian Prince. I got, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The badge I had yesterday said Arabian Prince on okay. it. Okay. And, uh, and, and what? What was that effect, by the way? Like, what? Well, I'm tr I'm trying to imagine the culture clash. It was it? a culture clash. I'm yeah. walking around in a Raiders jacket and a Raiders hat, you know, and <laughs> at a tech convention. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I go to. I've been going to CES for the last thirty years, and yeah. Comdex and Computex and you know, SIGGRAPH, all of these conventions, tech, NAB, all of them. I go to all of them, and it's weird. Even to today, when I walk up, they don't give me respect until I open my mouth. Huh. And they hear what I'm saying. Like even yesterday, I'm at the tech thing, and you could tell when people are testing you. Yeah, you know, some of the executives of some of the companies were asking me questions and talking about. There was a guy who his company I can't remember his name, but amazing guy. He built all of the servers for Dropbox and YouTube and Yahoo, and I mean, you know, this dude's wow. yeah, yeah, big time cat. And he's talking to me and we're going back and forth. We're talking for 30 minutes. And then later on, one of the other 
um, executives comes up to me and says, that dude really likes you. He says you're the real deal. I'm like, what? Like, he didn't believe that? Yeah. He looked yeah. at me first and probably, ah, whatever, you know. You think that's still a problem today, huh? It is. Yeah. Because there was another guy who was an Iranian guy. Right. My new buddy. He got a company out in Torrance that an builds. Arabian meets an Iranian. Yes. Sorry. There you go. Right. But uh, he builds um, hard drives for servers and stuff. And he was, he wants to bring me in because he saw how people gravitated to me. And he said his problem is he's an old Iranian guy with an accent. No one wants to listen to him. He has amazing ideas. He showed me some amazing top secret stuff that's coming out. But no one wants to give him the time of day just because how he looks and how he talks. So I'm like, I can help you. You know, let me help your company sell your product to other companies because I know how to talk to people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sad. It shouldn't have to be that way. No, of course not. And yeah. I imagine it'll take a couple of years. No, it'll probably take longer than that before before that's all ironed out as well. Well, you know what? I think it's changing because you got these guys who are building tech in garages now or software. Like look at Snapchat. I mean, if I walk Snapchat into any company and said, I want to make this, no one would have gave me a dime. They made it themselves. Now it's a billion dollar company. Same thing with Facebook and, you know, even Google. Google was made in the garage. I mean, they sound like your kind of people. Yeah. Right? They just do it by themselves. You they do it figured by out they're resourceful. There they're committed. They don't stop until they're done. Yeah. Microsoft just paid $30 billion or whatever it was for LinkedIn. Right. You know, and you would think huge companies could make their own. Yeah. But they wait until these small companies become big and buy them for billions of dollars. You know, my, my vision is, you know, if I had a huge company, I would create my own new tech. You need to bring outside eyes in. And that's something that we'll talk about, too. We're building a new technology center. I'm building an incubator now, a technology incubator, okay. where I want to bring in students, kids, college students, new startups, and help fund their ideas. Fantastic. From the where, outside Where in. is that? Where I'm going to put it in Marina Del Rey. So okay. um, Ingram Micro, Microsoft, Intel, a lot of the technology partners, they like the concept, so they're going to fund it. They're going to help me fund this thing that we can have a place where just people with ideas and from kids to adults to startups, whatever, can come in, have the tools. We'll have all the modern tools from VR to 3D printing, everything you need to create, including, you know, coders. Because if you've got Intel and Microsoft and all these companies behind you, why not be able to use those resources to create the future? Because sometimes the company, big corporate companies are so big, they can't do it. They can't stop the machine yeah. to create this but an outside company can do it with the help of them so i want to create that and just make new creative and what are you amazing, hoping comes out of that um new technology new, new software new, new software. apps yeah and also something that can be monetized not just oh you're doing it to give back but yeah we're giving back but we're also making jobs for mm. these kids coming up or you know, kids in the neighborhoods. Like I build custom PCs as well, like yeah. crazy custom PCs, yeah. water cooled, all that stuff. And I take them to schools to show kids how computing can be cool. It's not just boring. You can have fun building technology and, you know, doing stuff. I'm sure that that's changed now too, though, right? I'm sure kids nowadays are seeing these, you know, billion dollar CEOs at the age of 22 or 23 and thinking, I want to do that. Well, you know what? It's weird. You think that, but what happens is, and when I talk at these schools, they want the billion dollars, right? but they don't want to put in the work to do it. And our generation, this new generation right now, they're consumers of tech. 
Yeah. They're not creators of tech. There's a very small percentage of people who are creating the tech for the world. Huh. Everybody else just, oh, I got an iPad, I got a, you know, iPhone, I have this, I have that. They just take it for granted without thinking that I want to push the boundaries of this product. I can make something better. And I think that's where kids need to get to the point to where it's fun. I can make something better and I can have a Ferrari and a big house. And, yeah. you know, you got to kind of trick them. And that's what I want to do. Show them cool stuff and say, hey, you can be in the hood baller. You can be a big baller in technology and have more money than look at Dre. Dre been successful his whole career in music. Where did he make his money? Technology. Yeah. He made all beats. his money in beats, headphones, yeah. which is a piece of tech. Right. He didn't make $700 million on music. He made it on tech. That's, that's right. where the money is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great role model to have. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, him. Yeah. Um, esports. Esports. It's just, I'm just knocking big. down topics as they come. It's um, big. It's, it's big. But take me back to when you first started. Man. Um, Counter-Strike, right? That's your game. No. Actually, I play. I yeah. play CSGO. I'm more of an RPG guy, so I play CSGO. Role-playing. Role-playing, but you. I play CSGO. I play um, my game still to this day is Quake Live or Quake. Uh -huh. Quake 3 was one of the biggest ones to come out. It's the fat To this day, Quake is still one of the fastest played games out there. I mean, you know, you have to have the skill to play this game because it moves so fast. And um, they still have Quake tournaments. There's a big Quake, um, Quake Con coming up I'm going to go to in Texas soon. And... Um, they're putting out a new Quake. I'm just giving all kind of pub. Quake uh, Champions is coming out. But just esports in general, how I got in was, and we touched on it a little bit, how I got into doing video games and special effects was I went to, um, what was the first company I went to? I think I got introduced to Fox. No, I got introduced to Saban. Mm -hmm. We did Power Rangers. Oh, okay. You know, Saban was Power Rangers. Um, they had all of the stuff on Fox tv on the weekends it was like the saban hour or whatever and it was all the x-men cartoons and silver surfer and power rangers and all of that so when they found out that i could do animation they brought me in like to help them what year was that this had to be 91 maybe 92. wow man so early. right like like a couple years after nwa oh, yeah was, uh -huh. i was already looking into doing that stuff and um i worked on hundreds of so i worked on silver surfer the Adams Family movies, Casper, Mighty Morphin, Power Rangers. Just as one dude working on animation. Yeah, they had a very small, very small crew. Yeah. And I was doing the compositing and some of the animation, and we did an amazing thing. And I even had my own computer servers at the time because I was partners with this company, Intergraph. So I had a render farm in my freaking condo. And they were like, dude, we need more rendering power. So I brought my rendering machines over to Saban, and we were just making money. And just putting out crazy hits, but it wasn't enough. It was so long hours to do these things. It was cutting into my creativity and the music side of things. So I'm like, hmm. And I looked across the street, I'm like, oh, Fox Interactive. Oh, they do video games over there. Ha! So then I've met some people at Fox Interactive, and um, same thing, like, what do you want to do? Like, who are you? Like, we don't know how to do a deal. Like, how would we do this? Like, you want to learn video games, but you're this person over here, and we can't just give you a job. Like, right. so I'm like, well, I'll do whatever. Like, I just want to sit here and learn. They don't, they couldn't understand me. So I came in as like a game tester for a while and just sat there and just kind of 
learn and I would hang out with the executives because of who I was, but then test games and just do all of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, I kind of moved up the ladder, you know, game tester, lead tester, associate, you know, producer, little stuff like that. And once I figured it out, I left and started doing my own thing, but I worked on hundreds of video games. So I do things to kind of figure out how to do it. And then I go do it on my own, you know? And, um, Esports is now, ma- I mean, I say it's now massive. It's it's definitely, it's growing incredibly. Yes. I don't know if it's really hit the mainstream consciousness yet. Well, I, ESPN. I feel like ESPN, yeah. you're right. Um, I just saw, what is it? Is it TNT that's got, that's televising a league as well? Yep, um, and uh, Rick Fox and Shaq, they both are right. teams. That's right. Um, but when you probably got into it, it was a little bit less high profile. Than oh, that. yeah, it was just more local local based national but not televised just there was some money in it you'd battle against other guys yeah. you know for prizes or trophies or you know, ten thousand dollars or matter of fact we gave away a car at fox interactive we gave away a car to uh one of the big guys he's still around um more of his ambassador than a player um fatality okay. he was one of the biggest e-gamers back in the day and um what kind of car we it was a, a avp alien versus predator Ford Focus that we had all like tricked out and branded with <laughs> Alien versus Predator uh, on it. It doesn't. It doesn't sound very cool, man. <laughs> no, nah, I talked to him about uh, a few months ago at CES. He said, I, yeah. "I just sold that car. I've had it all this time." I'm like, "You had that car for like over ten years?" I'm like, wow, Ford Focus. Yeah, with graphics on it. With graphics on it. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you are able to, to skate through these worlds. Um, what what is it in you that I mean I I I think like the most valuable tool kids growing up these days this generation can have is adaptability. Yep. Um, how did you have adaptability at such a young age? You know how how were you able to seamlessly you know go from you know uh, NWA from Compton f- to um, executives at nascent computer companies tech companies to game designers to esports? I mean. What what is it inside of you that um, allows that? The ooh factor. What's the ooh factor? It's actually that's another one of my company names. I'm about to do a new thing. Should called we the copyright ooh that? Is yeah. that is yeah. it? Can we can we put like an audio TM at yeah. like that or ooh something? Ooh factor. Okay. Um, we're gonna do like a a new little uh, YouTube channel called the Ooh Factor because of the way I have been my whole life. Like right. things that make you go ooh. Yeah. That's why I do what I do is because <laughs> I'll see something. I'm like ooh. I want to do that. Yeah. And that's it's as simple as that. I'll see something like, I want to do that. And then I'll start my research to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And do it. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, I've been blessed to have had money since I was what, 16, 17 years old doing music. Maybe not a lot of money early on, but enough to do what I want to do. Yeah. You know, so maybe that's why. You yeah, know. but you also you applied that money in fruitful directions, you know. Yeah. Um, you you invested. I mean, seventeen year old with money chasing girls on venice beach i mean i could see how you would run out of money actually at one point no no i was no. Very, venice was cheaper back then yeah too. and also no I was chai very, lattes or yoga i spend classes. money like yeah. i'll go buy i tell people you know i'll buy a hundred thousand hundred fifty thousand dollar car but i'll drive it for 10 years right you know what i mean <laughs> right. like right. it's one of those things with me i'll spend a lot of money on something but it's yeah. for a reason i'm not just throwing yeah, yeah, money yeah. around or whatever you know yeah, yeah yeah so the ooh factor but also just your personality probably huh yeah it's just uh you you probably traffic in the fact that you're this outsider 
Yeah, that's the fact too. Like I really love, and a lot of people who know me know I love SpongeBob. I watch SpongeBob like religiously every single that's day. That's really bizarre to me, by the way. Well, I have, okay. I collect toys too. I got a room full of SpongeBob Where toys. Where the hell does that come from? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been a Kirk, you know, from doing yeah. animation and stuff, sure, but yeah. I have respect for people who can take an idea that, you know, I talk about the whole strange thing. Like if someone can take an idea that shouldn't be successful and make it su- successful, that's what I love. So some guy drew a sponge and was like, this is cool, and we're going to make a billion dollars off of this. And somebody saw the foresight to go, let's do it and let this happen. You know what I mean? And that's what I want to do. I don't want to take something that's safe and, oh, yeah, we can. No, 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 no. Let's do something amazing. Yeah. Let's do something so far out the box and make it happen. You know, like my new tech center I'm trying to do. It's so far out the box. Let's do something and let kids create because kids are the ones who are going to create anyway. Let's do it now. Let's not waiting and have people say no all the time. Let's say yes and do some amazing things. Do you have a five-year plan? Do you Can you even look in the future? Is there, I mean, where, where are you going to be? Where, and, and what's going to drive you to that? Well, I'm always um, one step ahead of technology. So what people are talking about now, I'm not talking about too much. I'm always already talking about what's next so right now the hot thing is vr mm-hmm. and ar virtual reality augmented reality those are the things that you see i was just at e3 the inner uh, the gaming convention last week every booth virtual reality augmented reality and it's cool it's not ready yet i mean it's there but two three four years down the line it's going to be in every household it's going to be a part of your everyday functional life. So I'm looking there, not here. I could care less about what, what they're doing now. They're just generating small money. I'm looking at how to make it useful in everyday life, three, four, like you said, yeah, five the years down The technology moves it's such, so rapidly. Uh, how, how are you not convinced that something might supersede VR? Even well, that's what I'm looking at already on how to change it to make it better right. for the future. Like, good example, um, one of the couple of the companies now already have virtual reality backpacks. So they have full blown computers in a backpack that you wear with your goggles. So now you're not tethered to a computer. Yeah. It's in your backpack. So you're walking around with a full VR thing. What I'm wearing now, this is not a plug, but why not? I'm wearing something called Subpack, which is a, a backpack base subwoofer that's Bluetooth to my phone. Damn. So when I'm listening to music, I've got bass on my body. You're wearing the club on you. I'm wearing the club on me. So I wear this every single day because it's part of my creativity. It lets me feel the music. And even when I do VR, put my VR headsets on and Bluetooth it to this thing. And now if I'm on a roller coaster or if I'm somewhere where something's going on, you feel it and it yeah. actually puts you there. Yeah. So that's the future. Arabian Prince, I think you are from the future. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much. Man. I, I appreciate, really appreciate you. It. All right. Thank man. you. All right. Arabian Prince, thank you so, so much. Uh, I got a lot out of that interview, a lot I can apply to my own life. Um, Be sure to check us out, redbulletin.com. You can find the SoundCloud links to the podcast there. You can also, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes. That's the Red Bulletin podcast. Special thanks to the first name in podcasting, first name James, our engineer. Uh, our elusive producer, T. Rizza, and we've got uh, new pod members. Our pod is getting ever larger, uh, so shout out to Momo and uh, JK, it's Jess. 
for helping us line up guests and uh, keeping the vibe going. See you next time. 